Chapter Fifteen of The Mountains of California. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Kara Schallenberg. The Mountains of California by John Muir. Chapter Fifteen In the Sierra Foothills. Murphy's Camp is a curious old mining town in Calaveras County, at an elevation of twenty four hundred feet above the sea, situated like a nest in the centre of a rough, gravelly region rich in gold. Granites, slates, lavas, limestone, iron ores, quartz veins, auriferous gravels, remnants of dead fire rivers and dead water rivers are developed here side by side, within a radius of a few miles. And placed invitingly open before the student like a book, while the people and the region beyond the camp furnish mines of study of never failing interest and variety. When I discovered this curious place, I was tracing the channels of the ancient pre glacial rivers, instructive sections of which have been laid bare here and in the adjacent regions by the miners. Rivers, according to the poets, go on for ever. But those of the Sierra are young as yet and have scarcely learned the way down to the sea. While at least one generation of them have died and vanished together with most of the basins they drained. All that remains of them to tell their history is a series of interrupted fragments of channels, mostly choked with gravel, and buried beneath broad, thick sheets of lava. These are known as the Dead Rivers of California. And the gravel deposited in them is comprehensively called the Blue Lead. In some places, the channels of the present rivers trend in the same direction, or nearly so, as those of the ancient rivers. But in general, there is little correspondence between them, the entire drainage having been changed, or rather, made new. Many of the hills of the ancient landscapes have become hollows, and the old hollows have become hills. Therefore, the fragmentary channels, with their loads of auriferous gravel, occur in all kinds of unthought of places, trending obliquely, or even at right angles to the present drainage, across the tops of lofty ridges or far beneath them, presenting impressive illustrations of the magnitude of the changes accomplished since those ancient streams were annihilated. The last volcanic period preceding the regeneration of the Sierra landscapes. Seems to have come on over all the range almost simultaneously, like the glacial period. Notwithstanding, lavas of different age occur together in many places, indicating numerous periods of activity in the Sierra fire fountains. The most important of the ancient river channels in this region is a section that extends from the south side of the town beneath Coyote Creek and the ridge beyond it to the canyon of the Stanislaus. But on account of its depth below the general surface of the present valleys, the rich gold gravels it is known to contain cannot be easily worked on a large scale. Their extraordinary richness may be inferred from the fact that many claims were profitably worked in them by sinking shafts to the depth of two hundred feet or more and hoisting the dirt by a windlass. Should the dip of this ancient channel be such as to make the Stanislaus Canyon available as a dump, Then the grand deposit might be worked by the hydraulic method, and although a long, expensive tunnel would be required, the scheme might still prove profitable, for there is millions in it.
The importance of these ancient gravels as gold fountains is well known to miners. Even the superficial placers of the present streams have derived much of their gold from them. According to all accounts, the Murphy placers have been very rich, terrific rich, as they say here. The hills have been cut and scalped, and every gorge and gulch and valley torn to pieces and disemboweled, expressing a fierce and desperate energy hard to understand. Still, any kind of effort-making is better than inaction, and there is something sublime in seeing men working in dead earnest at anything, pursuing an object with glacier-like energy and persistence. Many a brave fellow has recorded a most eventful chapter of life on these Calaveras rocks. But most of the pioneer miners are sleeping now, their wild day done, while the few survivors linger languidly in the washed-out gulches or sleepy villages like harried bees around the ruins of their hive. We have no industry left now, they told me, and no men. Everybody and everything hereabouts has gone to decay. We are only bummers, out of the game, a thin scattering of poor, dilapidated cusses, compared with what we used to be in the grand old gold days. We were giants then, and you can look around here and see our tracks. But although these lingering pioneers are perhaps more exhausted than the mines, and about as dead as the dead rivers, they are yet a rare and interesting set of men, with much gold mixed with the rough, rocky gravel of their characters, and they manifest a breeding and intelligence little looked for in such surroundings as theirs. As the heavy, long-continued grinding of the glaciers brought out the features of the Sierra, so the intense experiences of the gold period have brought out the features of these old miners, forming a richness and variety of character little known as yet. The sketches of Bret Hart, Hayes, and Miller have not exhausted this field by any means. It is interesting to note the extremes possible in one and the same character— harshness and gentleness, manliness and childishness, apathy and fierce endeavour. Men who twenty years ago would not cease their shoveling to save their lives, now play in the streets with children. Their long, micawber-like waiting after the exhaustion of the placers has brought on an exaggerated form of dotage. I heard a group of brawny pioneers in the street eagerly discussing the quantity of tail required for a boy's kite, and one greybeard undertook the sport of flying it, volunteering the information that he was a boy. Always a boy, and dash a man who was not a boy inside, however ancient outside. Minds, morals, politics, the immorality of the soul, etc., were discussed beneath shade-trees and in saloons, the time for each being governed apparently by the temperature. Contact with nature, and the habits of observation acquired in gold-seeking, had made them all, to some extent, collectors, and, like wood-rats, they had gathered all kinds of odd specimens into their cabins, and now required me to examine them. They were themselves the oddest and most interesting specimens. One of them offered to show me around the old diggings, giving me fair warning before setting out that I might not like him. Because, said he, people say I'm eccentric. I notice everything, and gather beetles and snakes and anything that's queer, and so some don't like me and call me eccentric. 
I'm always trying to find out things. Now there's a weed. The Indians eat it for greens. What do you call those long-bodied flies with big heads? Dragonflies, I suggested. Well, their jaws work sidewise instead of up and down, and grasshoppers' jaws work the same way, and therefore I think they are the same species. I always notice everything like that, and just because I do they say I'm eccentric. Etc. Anxious that I should miss none of the wonders of their old gold-field, the good people had much to say about the marvellous beauty of Cave City Cave, and advised me to explore it. This I was very glad to do, and finding a guide who knew the way to the mouth of it, I set out from Murphy the next morning. The most beautiful and extensive of the mountain caves of California occur in a belt of metamorphic limestone that is pretty generally developed along the western flank of the Sierra, from the McLeod River on the north to the Coway on the south, a distance of over four hundred miles, at an elevation of from two thousand to seven thousand feet above the sea. Besides this regular belt of caves, the California landscapes are diversified by long imposing ranks of sea-caves, rugged and variable in architecture, carved in the coast headlands and precipices by centuries of wave-dashing, and innumerable lava-caves, great and small, originating in the unequal flowing and hardening of the lava-sheets in which they occur, fine illustrations of which are presented in the famous Modoc lava-beds, and around the base of icy Shasta. In this comprehensive glance we may also notice the shallow wind-worn caves in stratified sandstones along the margins of the plains, and the cave-like recesses in the Sierra slates and granites, where bears and other mountaineers find shelter during the fall of sudden storms. In general, however, the grand massive uplift of the Sierra, as far as it has been laid bare to observation, is about as solid and caveless as a boulder. Fresh beauty opens one's eyes wherever it is really seen, but the very abundance and completeness of the common beauty that besets our steps prevents its being absorbed and appreciated. It is a good thing, therefore, to make short excursions now and then to the bottom of the sea among dulse and coral, or up among the clouds on mountain-tops, or in balloons, or even to creep like worms into dark holes and caverns underground, not only to learn something of what is going on in those out-of-the-way places, but to see better what the sun sees on our return to common everyday beauty. Our way from Murphy's to the cave lay across a series of picturesque moory ridges in the chaparral region between the brown foothills and the forests, a flowery stretch of rolling hill-waves breaking here and there into a kind of rocky foam on the higher summits, and sinking into delightful bosky hollows embowered with vines. The day was a fine specimen of California summer, pure sunshine, unshaded most of the time by a single cloud. As the sun rose higher the heated air began to flow in tremulous waves from every southern slope. The sea-breeze that usually comes up the foothills at this season, with cooling on its wings, was scarcely perceptible. The birds were assembled beneath leafy shade, or made short languid flights in search of food, all save the majestic buzzard, 
With broad wings outspread he sailed the warm air unwearily from ridge to ridge, seeming to enjoy the fervid sunshine like a butterfly. Squirrels, too, whose spicy ardour no heat or cold may abate, were nutting among the pines, and the innumerable hosts of the insect kingdom were throbbing and wavering, unwearied as sunbeams. This brushy, berry-bearing region used to be a deer and bear pasture, but since the disturbances of the gold period these fine animals have almost wholly disappeared. Here also once roamed the mastodon and elephant, whose bones are found entombed in the river gravels and beneath thick folds of lava. Toward noon, as we were riding slowly over bank and brae, basking in the unfeverish sun-heat, we witnessed the upheaval of a new mountain-range, a sierra of clouds abounding in landscapes as truly sublime and beautiful, if only we have a mind to think so and eyes to see, as the more ancient rocky sierra beneath it, with its forests and waterfalls, reminding us that, as there is a lower world of caves, so also there is an upper world of clouds. Huge, bossy cumuli developed with astonishing rapidity from mere buds, swelling with visible motion into colossal mountains, and piling higher, higher, in long, massive ranges, peak beyond peak, dome over dome, with many a picturesque valley and shadowy cave between. While the dark firs and pines of the upper benches of the Sierra were projected against their pearl bosses with exquisite clearness of outline. These cloud mountains vanished in the azure as quickly as they were developed, leaving no detritus, but they were not a whit less real or interesting on this account. The more enduring hills over which we rode were vanishing as surely as they, only not so fast, a difference which is great or small according to the standpoint from which it is contemplated. At the bottom of every dell we found little homesteads, embosomed in wild brush and vines, wherever the recession of the hills left patches of arable ground. These secluded flats are settled mostly by Italians and Germans, who plant a few vegetables and grape-vines at odd times, while their main business is mining and prospecting. In spite of all the natural beauty of these dell-cabins, they can hardly be called homes. They are only a better kind of camp, gladly abandoned whenever the hoped-for gold-harvest has been gathered. There is an air of profound unrest and melancholy about the best of them. Their beauty is thrust upon them by exuberant nature, apart from which they are only a few logs and boards, rudely jointed, and without either ceiling or floor, a rough fireplace with corresponding cooking utensils, a shelf-bed, and stool. The ground about them is strewn with battered prospecting-pans, picks, sluice-boxes, and quartz specimens from many a ledge, indicating the trend of their owners' hard lives. The ride from Murphy's to the cave is scarcely two hours long, but we lingered among quartz ledges and banks of dead river gravel until long after noon. At length emerging from a narrow-throated gorge, a small house came in sight set in a thicket of fig-trees at the base of a limestone hill. "'That,' said my guide, pointing to the house, "'is Cave City, 
and the cave is in that grey hill. Arriving at the one house of this one house city, we were boisterously welcomed by three drunken men, who had come to town to hold a spree. The mistress of the house tried to keep order, and in reply to our inquiries told us that the cave guide was then in the cave with a party of ladies. "'And must we wait until he returns?' we asked. "'No, that was unnecessary. We might take candles and go into the cave alone, provided we shouted from time to time, so as to be found by the guide, and were careful not to fall over the rocks or into the dark pools.' Accordingly, taking a trail from the house, we were led around the base of the hill to the mouth of the cave, a small, inconspicuous archway, mossy around the edges and shaped like the door of a water-oozel's nest, with no appreciable hint or advertisement of the grandeur of the many crystal chambers within. Lighting our candles, which seemed to have no illuminating power in the thick darkness, we groped our way onward as best we could along narrow lanes and alleys, from chamber to chamber, around rustic columns and heaps of fallen rocks, stopping to rest now and then in particularly beautiful places. Fairy alcoves furnished with admirable variety of shelves and tables, and round bossy stools covered with sparkling crystals. Some of the corridors were muddy, and in plodding along these we seemed to be in the streets of some prairie village in springtime. Then we would come to handsome marble stairways, conducting right and left, into upper chambers ranged above one another three or four stories high, floors, ceilings, and walls lavishly decorated with innumerable crystalline forms. After thus wandering exploringly and alone for a mile or so, fairly enchanted, a murmur of voices and a gleam of light betrayed the approach of the guide and his party, from whom— when they came up, we received a most hearty and natural stare, as we stood half-concealed in a side-recess among stalagmites. I ventured to ask the dripping, crouching company how they had enjoyed their saunter, anxious to learn how the strange, sunless scenery of the underworld had impressed them. "'Ah, it's nice! It's splendid!' they all replied and echoed. "'The bridal chamber back here is just glorious!' This morning we came down from the Calaveras big-tree grove, and the trees are nothing to it. After making this curious comparison they hastened sunward, the guide promising to join us shortly on the bank of a deep pool, where we were to wait for him. This is a charming little lakelet of unknown depth, never yet stirred by a breeze, and its eternal calm excites the imagination even more profoundly than the silvery lakes of the glaciers, rimmed with meadows and snow, and reflecting sublime mountains. Our guide, a jolly, rollicking Italian, led us into the heart of the hill, up and down, right and left, from chamber to chamber, more and more magnificent, all a glitter like a glacier cave with icicle-like stalactites and stalagmites combined in forms of indescribable beauty. We were shown one large room that was occasionally used as a dancing-hall, another that was used as a chapel, with natural pulpit and crosses and pews, sermons in every stone where a priest had said mass. Mass-saying is not so generally developed in connection with natural wonders as dancing. 
One of the first conceits excited by the giant sequoias was to cut one of them down and dance on its stump. We have also seen dancing in the spray of Niagara, dancing in the famous bower cave above Coulterville, and nowhere have I seen so much dancing as in Yosemite. A dance on the inaccessible South Dome would likely follow the making of an easy way to the top of it. It was delightful to witness here the infinite deliberation of nature, and the simplicity of her methods in the production of such mighty results, such perfect repose combined with restless enthusiastic energy. Though cold and bloodless as a landscape of polar ice, building was going on in the dark with incessant activity. The archways and ceilings were everywhere hung with down-growing crystals, like inverted groves of leafless saplings, some of them large, others delicately attenuated, each tipped with a single drop of water, like the terminal bud of a pine-tree. The only appreciable sounds were the dripping and tinkling of water falling into pools, or faintly plashing on the crystal floors. In some places the crystal decorations are arranged in graceful flowing folds, deeply placated like stiff silken drapery. In others, straight lines of the ordinary stalactite forms are combined with reference to size and tone in a regularly graduated system, like the strings of a harp, with musical tones corresponding thereto. And on these stone harps we played, by striking the crystal strings with a stick." The delicious liquid tones they gave forth seemed perfectly divine, as they sweetly whispered and wavered through the majestic halls, and died away in faintest cadence. The music of fairyland. Here we lingered and reveled, rejoicing to find so much music in stony silence, so much splendor in darkness, so many mansions in the depths of the mountains, buildings ever in process of construction, yet ever finished, developing from perfection to perfection, profusion without overabundance, every particle visible or invisible, in glorious motion, marching to the music of the spheres, in a region regarded as the abode of eternal stillness and death. The outer chambers of mountain caves are frequently selected as homes by wild beasts. In the Sierra, however, they seem to prefer homes and hiding-places in chaparral, and beneath shelving precipices, as I have never seen their tracks in any of the caves. This is the more remarkable, because, notwithstanding the darkness and oozing water, there is nothing uncomfortably cellar-like or sepulchral about them. When we emerged into the bright landscapes of the sun, everything looked brighter, and we felt our faith in nature's beauty strengthened, and saw more clearly that beauty is universal and immortal, above, beneath, on land and sea, mountain and plain, in heat and cold, light and darkness. End of chapter 15 Read by Kara Schallenberg www.kray.org On January 5th, 2007 In Oceanside, California